Thank you very much to Ariel Willenau for joining us to speak about how blockchain is being used to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. Ariel's spoken at a few of our Crypto Curry Club events with great popularity. He's uh, been the man working on or behind some of the, the greatest blockchain projects, working with uh, Deutsche Telekom and, and IBM and Lloyds of London, amongst others, and is, is well, the founder of, of FinServe Experts and has now partnered with uh, Block Bioscience. Is that correct? To uh, work on a, a solution for blockchain to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. So very grateful to Ariel for uh, joining us and speaking. Uh, thanks very much, Erica. Sound check. Can everybody see, uh, hear loud and clear? And can everybody see the screen? Erica, thanks for having me. And uh, it's been it's been a wild ride. Those of you who know, I've had I left IBM about four years ago now to start my own consulting firm, FinServe Experts. And uh, beginning of this year, started talking about partnering with 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 Block Solutions to work on a number of problems that both Block and we were, were passionate about. Central bank digital currency being one example, helping people out of the, the revolving credit trap with a very promising UK fintech called Finexos uh, being another. But when COVID hit, we realized that we had the right combination of platform delivery expertise, supply chain expertise, and, and medical expertise that we had not only the privilege, but you know, the obligation to step in and do something. So we've been working on this since late January, early February, uh, and it's now stable enough that we, we, we feel that it's the appropriate time uh, to start talking about it and to share what we've got going and, and what we're doing with it. This isn't so much a sales pitch, though, but it's, it's more talking about the capability and our reaction to some of the same things that, that you've been reading in the press uh, being released by governments around the world and so forth. So with that being said, let's let's dig in. Managing this COVID is hard. You know, people who run governments and, and major enterprises around the world are used to dealing with difficult questions and, and hard issues. But the questions we're dealing with now are coming from so many different directions. And there isn't any information or any data to use an example, you know, when people are talking about immunity and whether the IgG antibody grants immunity, you've heard the WHO say, oh, we don't know if it does. And of course, the, you know, when the press gets a hold of that, they say, well, okay, so we're not sure. And you know, there's, there were some cases in South Korea about people who appear to have been reaffected. And this generates a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear. And the reality, though, is that when the medical community says something like, or uses the word immunity or protection, that opinion is based typically on years of research. And they won't use that word unless they're really sure they know what it means. If those of you who were around when AIDS first emerged into world awareness in the 1980s, there was a debate of several years quite an acrimonious debate about whether or not the HIV virus actually was, was the cause of AIDS. And people who questioned that were, were pilloried in, in the press for exhibiting what was you know, otherwise an acceptable level of scientific rigor. So there's no reason to expect that somebody would have the answer for a virus whose existence is less than a year old. So it, 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 it's not surprising that 
the medical community is not you know, willing to use the word immunity or that the WHO would warn us that you know, an immunity passport is not a guarantee of immunity. Of course it isn't. We don't have the science yet. We have to make the best decisions um, based on the data we've got. The other thing that's hard is that various people, you know, and, I, and I'm not talking just about you know, two people in the back of their garage, major enterprises, brilliant innovators, very successful entrepreneurs have all put forward solutions. And you know, somebody says, well, the answer is contact trace. The answer is testing. And the debate that rages is in many ways a false dichotomy and, and causes a lot of unnecessary friction. In our view, that the, the answer is actually an entire ecosystem. And any one of the pieces of this ecosystem is worthless uh, without the others. So going through, the first thing, I guess, is discussing that ecosystem. An immunity passport is, is a certifiable and, in our opinion, self-sovereign record of somebody's antibody immunization symptom status. It's data that they own themselves that can be used to validate and to determine whether or not, for instance, somebody can return to work, somebody can enter a plane, somebody can go to a bar or a restaurant. For that to have any value, though, again, it would be worthless if you weren't able to put onto that passport some test results. So, great, you've got a self-sovereign record with nothing on it unless you have testing. So the test results are another key part of the ecosystem required to manage COVID-19. So you have to be able to test at scale. So we're talking about entire workforces. We're talking about the population of entire countries. Without that test information, having a passport doesn't do any good. Okay. The notion of testing doesn't make sense unless you can actually supply those tests. Most of the tests today, not all of them, but most of them come from China. That's true because China has the majority of the world's manufacturing capacity in general. And it's doubly true because China was the first place that had to deal with COVID. The Chinese government so far has had a record of flipping on and off the ability of the Chinese companies to export. And even when they theoretically have the ability to export, the Chinese government has made it clear that they have first call on the manufacturing capacity of Chinese companies when they need it. I don't expect any other major country would do any differently. They would look after their, first, you know, their own citizens first. And then finally, you have the question of, of guidance and contact trace. Right now, most people are getting their guidance from social media from sharing articles that people read in reputable and less reputable journalistic sites. And it's very, very difficult for the government to issue guidance uh, in a reliable way. And even when it can, the guidance is often far more complex than most people can handle. Uh, witness Boris Johnson's recent attempt to try and, and put in place a multi-staged alert system. Mostly it generated confusion. I probably, you know, though not, not the biggest fan of Boris Johnson, have a lot of sympathy because the rules are complex. And to expect to put this into a mass media message is, is daunting, to say the least. 
the last piece of the 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 ecosystem then is having all this data, having all the, you know the passport, the testing, being able to produce this, the the tests and, and the guidance is the question of how do you get that guidance to people and how do you make the right decisions as decision makers about when to open bars, when to open hotels, how many people let to let onto public transport, where are the tests going, what areas don't have enough tests, okay? If there's if there are you know if there's a batch of tests that prove unreliable, how do you find where you know where other tests from that same batch are and make sure that people aren't using it to make the wrong decisions? What kind of tests do you give? Which kinds are accurate? Which kinds are not accurate? What are the various purposes? All of these questions are you know are things that have to be juggled. So the answer has to be an ecosystem. So what we've tried to do is put in place a framework that's not only a technology platform, but that full ecosystem. So that's, you know, so I, I want to walk through what that ecosystem, what the pieces of that ecosystem are. And because this is the crypto curry also to talk about where blockchain uh, plays a role. There is nothing that, you know, that, that's part of this ecosystem that you couldn't do with traditional technologies. Okay. That's absolutely clear. You know, blockchain provides shared records. There is messaging and synchronization that could do that. Blockchain provides immutability. You can make a traditional database immutable as well. The reason blockchain is very, very useful is because a lot of the problems that people have been trying to solve with blockchain for the past three or four years are exactly some of the problems that we face in delivering this ecosystem. So we can leverage a lot of the work that's been done in the blockchain industry around supply chain, around self-sovereign ID, and get a leg up and deliver something very fast. And delivering something very fast is really what we need right now. So to that, that being said, because we need to go so fast, there's a limit on how much we want to innovate. I am normally a big fan doing new things of being doing things that haven't been done before it's you know it's what motivates me it makes it's what makes me want to get out of bed in the morning but in this case we need to deliver something that works and we need to deliver it so fast that one of the decisions we made very early is we weren't going to try anything that had been done before in at least you know some level of success out in the world so we need to be able to query data without actually sharing that data. So we don't create a central centralized database that the government can use to create a surveillance state. So for that example, we actually looked at a solution that the government of British Columbia used to let people into bars. They had a serious problem several years back where bouncers at, you know, at, at, at bars and clubs who were letting young women into those clubs were just reading the data off of their driver's license and stalking them. So, you know, so to get into a club, uh, somebody would have to show their, you know, their driver's license or some other ID and the bouncer at the door could see their name, their address, their age, you know, all of this very personal information. So what the government did is they piloted a, a program that put an app on people's phone where the app could show an attested, you know, an attestation of your status and all the bouncer needed to see with this app was, should you let the person in the door or not? So they just, you know, it was a very simple app. 
that when you tried to go into uh, you know, an establishment where alcohol was being served, all the bouncers saw on their app was a green check or a red X. They don't need to, you know, they don't need to actually know any of the details like your name or where you live. They just need to know whether to let you in the club. So we use some of the, some of the design thinking around that. Self-sovereign identity and, and being able to make you know, decisions. We also looked at a, a pilot that the government of Canada did with the government of Denmark, where they actually used self-sovereign ID to make immigration decisions in, in the same way where you would not necessarily have to show your passport or other, share other identifying information for somebody in an airline or in a border control to decide whether to let you in the country. With analytics and using machine learning, we, we took a page from what IBM has done with Watson around diagnostic assistance. So in this instance, you know, what you can't do is replace doctors for many, many reasons, but one of the key ones is accountability. You know, a doctor may use uh, you know, a, a computer to aid them in research, but the responsibility for making a diagnose, diagnosis has to remain with the doctor. Well, you've got an artificial intelligence program called Watson that IBM runs that can provide, that can do research on symptoms at a scale that a single individual, however talented or gifted, could never do. So a doctor being faced with a set of novel symptoms that they did not know how to diagnose could receive suggestions from Watson on what the case might be. And the suggestion will be based on reading thousands and thousands of journal articles, more than any one physician could read in their lifetime. They don't replace the physician, but they provide the physician data that they could never get on their own to make better decisions. And then finally, in, in the case of provenance, being able to understand where the testing machines for the labs and the test kits for the homes are coming from, we took a page from Everledger, which is a UK-based startup that had the first real blockchain production solution, which is tracing the provenance of diamonds from mine all the way to ring, helping track down diamond smuggling, forged forgery with simulated diamonds, theft, blood diamonds, et cetera, by having a secure supply chain uh, all the way through. So every piece of this ecosystem that, that we're putting together, or indeed that anyone should put together, to my mind, if you're gonna go as fast as we're going now, there have to be these kind of reference points, or it's just too risky. So talking about the principal actors in this ecosystem, we start with the, the member, which is, which is the person you care about. And we use the term member because it's generic. Governments will care about their citizens. Large enterprises will care about their employees. Hospitality will care about their guests. Transport entities will care about their travelers. Okay, so members, the, the generic term for somebody, you know, somebody who is, in, you know, is engaging uh, with the organization, the org, uh, that is putting this, this ecosystem in place. The agents are the people who are making the decision, you know, at the coalface. These are the people who are saying, should I let this person on the train? Should I let this person into the bar? Can I let this person return to work? They're also the medical care professionals that are doing the testing. So anyone who's interacting with the members is an agent. So in the case of an enterprise, agents are often employees or contractors of the organization. In the case of a government, they might be government employees, but they also might be you know, empowered people from private industry 
So for instance, in, in the, here in the UK, every year when you go to get a, an influenza immunization, you typically go to a large UK drugstore called Boots, or Chemist, the term they use here, called Boots. And you have them, uh, and they will give you uh, a, flu, a flu vaccination right there in, in, in the drugstore. So the, the, boots, the Boots employee, in this case, would be the agent. And then finally, uh, ourselves, Block, as the solution provider, have work to do to offer up the capabilities to these actors. So let's dig in and talk about what I think is, is the most important problem to solve, which is how to get people tested. So what I'm sharing with you is uh, a recent view of a testing protocol. I'll say a couple things about this. First of all is that it's simplified in that you know, there, there's a lot of other exception loops in here. And the second is that it's already wrong. This, this, this protocol is perhaps four days old, and we've already learned more since then. So the ecosystem has to take account of the fact that these protocols have been changing on a, on a weekly and in some cases a daily basis, and they will continue to do so as our medical so, uh, science evolves. And it's evolving very quickly, and we're learning a lot as we go. So I'm going to walk you through this just to give you as, as an example. So this is no longer correct, so please don't take this as gospel. So the starting point for, for the protocol, we believe, is the rapid test, which is the, the test that, that you do with a finger prick at home, which tests for the antibodies. You'll have heard a lot in the press that these tests aren't very, very accurate. And that's correct. They aren't. They are, you know, some, you know, the worst ones are 70% accurate and the best ones are in the low 90s. So far, they are improving. That is not accurate enough to use for diagnostic purposes. You can make a decision to treat somebody uh, and put their life at risk with 90% accuracy. You can, however, do a couple really, really useful things, even with 70% accuracy. A 70% accurate test is plenty accurate enough for epidemiology. If you are to want to track the you know, outbreak, if you want to find hot spots of infection, 70% is plenty for any decent statistical algorithm to say, look, this is where we are experiencing an, out an outbreak. This is where hundreds of people are getting infected. So with home screening, we can rush you know, ventilators, medical pair people, you know, further tests to a spot where an outbreak is concerned. And that's with a fairly low accuracy test. The other place where the rapid test is absolutely key is in the treatment of COVID. So what happens when people do catch it and they are at risk and they end up in the ICU on a ventilator? So far, the best medical science says that the best treatment we have right now is blood serum. You give somebody who is critically ill, somebody who is at risk of dying, a transfusion of serum from the blood of somebody who has already survived the disease and carries the antibodies, and those antibodies will go to work. They often don't completely cure, but they lessen the symptoms to the point where your body can do its job of fighting the virus. And blood serum so far is the best treatment. The rapid test is a great first screen at finding potential blood donors. So it plays an absolutely key role in the ecosystem, even though it's not that accurate. So if somebody is, performs the rapid test and they test positive, 
the next thing you want to do, okay, is get them a more accurate test. So the more accurate tests are lab tests to date. They can be done with blood samples, uh, and in some cases, they can be done with with sputum. This is the you know the the PCR test that you get with a swab at the back of your nose or your back of your throat. These tests are much more accurate. They are accurate enough for for diagnostic purposes. The one we're currently using, which is manufactured by a company called Wilo, is ninety nine point two percent accurate. Okay, and we have a secure supply chain for those, but they will never approach the scale that you can get with the rapid home test. So you need to decide, you know, you need to triage. You need to decide who to give the accurate tests to. And so our view is that you give, you give the tests to somebody who has tested positive for the antibody. And if they are a key worker, if they're working in a hospital or with the police, you get them tested right away. Otherwise, you can confirm for, that they are clear of symptoms for seven days and then you test them, Okay. If somebody runs through the high accuracy lab test and they carry the IgG antibody and they've been clear of symptoms for seven days, they are likely immune to COVID-19. Okay. Likely is all we can say. As I said, you know, immunity is a word that the medical community will use after years of research. Likely immune is, is the best we're going to do right now. Okay. If the infection is conser- confirmed or if they remain at risk, uh, then they stay home. If somebody tests negative for the antibodies, again, you check for symptoms at home. And if they start showing symptoms, you then review and you can actively track and you can possibly treat. Okay. If somebody gets very sick, they can go to the hospital. If they remain symptom free for a a period of time, then they are eligible for many of the PPE related return to work protocols. So far, you know, only you know, a small number of percentage of people are going to have the antibodies uh, or indeed to get COVID, you know, less than 5% in most countries, even the countries with the most serious outbreaks. We can't keep 95% of our workforce at home forever. That's just not sustainable. So we have to have protocols that, that allow people who have tested negative and have had no symptoms to return to work somehow. So the protocol supports that. Anyway, so that, that's, that's a, a recent protocol. It's not the most current one. And if I gave you the most current one today, it, it wouldn't be the, the right one by the end of the week. This is just an example of what we're using to design a platform that allows for rapidly changing protocols. Let's go on then to talk about the immunity passport. And this is probably one of the areas where the technology is one of the biggest contributors. It's very, very difficult to give the medical community, to give researchers, and to give government decision makers the ability they need to make decisions uh, without compromising people's privacy. But it isn't impossible. And drawing on some of the experiences from the government of British Columbia, government of Canada, uh, some of the work that's being done in Europe, there is a way to do it, uh, and, and we've done it. The way to do this is to create an application where any personal information stays on your mobile device and never leaves it. So how does that work? And how can, you know, how, you know, how can people make the necessary inferences? So I want to walk you through the way the immunity passport works. And I'll start with how you sign up for it. 
uh, because that'll explain it, I, I think, a little bit better. When you first download an immunity passport app, you take you use that app to take uh, a selfie of yourself and a picture of uh, a government accepted ID. That I, the photo of that ID remains on your phone. Uh, it is physically impossible. There is no API. There is no way for the app to query that the, the phone to get that information. You then take the selfie and the, selfie and the picture of, of your ID to an agent, to a human being, to get attested. What that agent does is they look at your physical ID, which you bring with you. They look at the selfie you took. They look at the picture of the ID on your phone, and they look at you in person. They look at your face, and they attest that all four of the same things, uh, all four, the selfie, your physical self, your ID, and your picture of your ID are the same person, and they record you as attested. Once you are attested, you can then do everything else, okay? That attestation is linked to your physical device. It is linked to your photograph. And at no point in that conversation or in that interaction has, you know, has the agent even recorded your name. When you sign up for this application, you don't enter your name. We don't know your name. We don't need to know your name to do this, okay? The only identifying information is the picture of your passport, and that never leaves your phone. The attesting agent looks at it once, and nobody ever sees it again. So once you're attested, let's say you go, you go to a, or, or you receive a, a, a rapid home kit in your home. You can test that, and you can upload it. And that test result, again, it sits on your phone. It never leaves the phone. There is no way to get it off your phone. Let's say you go to get a blood test because you've tested positive for the IgG antibody and you are potential and you are symptom free you are potentially immune so you want to go get a lab test to confirm your likely immunity you go to a doctor or a nurse or a phlebotomist to give blood they will have the agent app which scans a QR code on your app okay so the first thing that happens after that QR the agent scans your QR code is that you get a data consent message and you can see you can see an example of one of those consent messages on the right hand side of the screen so before anything else happens you are giving consent for your data to be shared you still aren't sharing your passport information you still aren't even sharing your name you're just giving consent to share the results of the test so that the government or your employer can make a decision about letting you back to work okay you're not sharing any identifying information just the test result Okay, you give that consent, and then the 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 person doing the test, they see a picture, they see the selfie. They don't see the passport. They don't see your name. They just see the selfie. And the agent is asked, "Is the person in the selfie the person in front of you? Yes or no?" Okay, they say yes, and then they can do the test. That's it. At no point has any identifying information changed hands. They do the test, the test, they take blood, the blood is sent to a lab, okay, and then you receive your results back on the app. At no point have we recorded anything about you. So the idea is that this immunity passport is your record, okay, and the tests you get and the symptoms you record are like visa stamps in a passport. It stays in your possession. They own, you know, so you as an individual own and control your own data, and it never leaves the phone. 
It's you know, it is impossible. So when we when we roll this out in production, we will have an independent auditor come and actually walk through the code and confirm what we're saying. That no, there is no way to get any of this data off the phone ever. There is no central database of your test results uh, or of any information about you. So the, 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 the passport is yours and remains yours and the data is yours and remains yours. So that's great. How can governments, scientists, researchers do what they need to do if all this information is sitting on your phone? How can somebody decide whether or not you are you know, either never been infected or already immune to let you into work or to let you onto a plane? So I want to go through some of the most common things that decision makers need to do and explain how they work so you get a sense of that. So let us suppose you're an epidemiologist and what you're trying to do is identify infection hotspots or growth of immune communities. What you can do is you can look at the symptoms in aggregate. So we don't have any information about how John Smith was tested, but we do have information about people being tested in geographic regions, okay? And you, you as John Smith have given your consent to share the results. The results are completely anonymized. The most, the most strict guidelines on de-identification, you know, de on anonymization of data are from an organization in the US called CMS. We exceed those. So we make sure that we are sharing the data in a truly anonymous way. And epidemiologists can use that anonymized data without having to know anything about John Smith or whether or not he has antibodies. How can people use, you know, use data that never leaves your phone to do risk management and to give you guidance so that it's safe for you to return to work? What happens here is very similar to the case of somebody walking into a bar. So if I'm an employer, I can query the phone of my employees to say, is this person okay to return to work given the current protocol? And remember, the protocols can change every day. But given the, the, the current protocol, can this person return to work? Now, by US law, and I believe by UK law as well, I can't actually ask, do you have COVID? That's private medical information. And I, as an employer, it's actually illegal for me to ask that of you. Now, that hasn't stopped people from doing it because we're in panic mode right now. But you know, eventually, you know, case law will settle and people will realize that asking somebody if you have COVID is against the law. You know, it, 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 certainly in the US, probably in the UK and, and in other countries as well. But I can ask, are you, are you okay to work, return to work given current government guidelines? Now, answering that question requires data that you're not allowed to ask. But if I answer that question on the phone and just re return the green check or the red X, then I can make, get the information I need to make decisions without violating your civil liberties and without breaking the law, okay? Likewise, I can use a combination of querying the individual test results on the phone and the, you know, the anonymized data to start making some very, very smart decisions about how to deploy my tests. So we have a supply chain. We know where the tests are. We know where the tests aren't. And because of the growth of the hotspots, we know where they need to be. So if, there's, if there are supply chain shortages, this gives us the ability to be flexible and to say, you know, there's a surplus of tests here and more tests are needed there. 
the next way that this can be used without violating any civil liberties or sharing data is around giving guidance. So if I'm the government, I want to be able to give guidance to people to say, you are clear to return to work. You need to stay home. You need to check your symptoms. You should go into a lab test. Okay. But nobody wants to give a government uh, a central database. So what I can do is I can send the master guidance out and your phone, which remains in your possession, can use the data on the phone to make sure that you get the right subset of guidance. So if I send the guidance out to each phone with every possible state, the phone can use the data that's on the phone to make sure that the person using the phone receives the right guidance. So again, I can give you advice without needing to know anything about your individual status. So the last piece is the trickiest, which is this, this notion of contact trace. So contact trace, for those of you who haven't heard the term yet, is the ability to basically find out if somebody has COVID, who they've interacted with. So I could find out where the immunity is spread, who's got this. Very, very difficult to do this without putting in place a, a surveillance state. One of the reasons that China has been relatively successful in shutting down the pandemic in Wuhan as, as, as quickly as they did uh, is because you know, their notion of the trade-off between safety and freedom is, is, is very different than, than ours. It's a, you know, it's a different set of values. So the Chinese contact trace system, which we've reviewed and understand the architecture of very well, you know, is, is effective because uh, the government can mandate that you, you, know, you, you keep a record of everyone you've talked to. In many cases, the Chinese government was, was already doing this for political reasons. That's, you know, it's part of uh, how they choose to run their society. So you know, extending that surveillance capability was not a difficult stretch, either uh, intellectually or technologically for China. Well, we don't want to, or most of us anyway, don't want to implement that kind of capability you know, in our own countries. So doing that uh, is hard. And the uptake of contact trace solutions has been very low as a result. So we could just say, you know what, we don't like it because it Im implements a surveillance state. Uh, but there's an inconvenient truth, which uh, is that it works. Uh, it's very effective in finding and tracking down and shutting down outbreaks before uh, they exponentiate. So we felt in designing this, in, uh, this solution that we needed to provide a level of support for contract trace when a given society you know, elected you know, you know, to, to, to implement such a capability on behest of their government, on behest of you know, their own leaders. We didn't feel like we wanted to play uh, judge, jury, and executioner. So what we've done here is provide the, ca the capability to, to integrate with solutions that governments or enterprises chose to use uh, without contaminating uh, the self-sovereignty of our passport or our approach. So what we've built for contact, uh, contact trace is a set of integrated pipes that, that, explain, you know, that, that provide that ability for those who choose to use it, but do not mix it with the anonymized data and do not let it go anywhere near the private data that stays on the phone. So the ability to, to have insight and the ability to have self-sovereign data are therefore completely separate. So the insight is a portal that an organization uses 
whereas the Passport only stays on the app and never comes off the app. The Insight has operational data store, which is owned by the organization, but is anonymized on the Passport side, the individual owns the data. The guidance is drafted by people and sent to the Passport, and the Passport uses the data on the phone to make sure that people get the real the guidance that pertains to them and allows the organization to adjust the protocols in real time. And the, the insight can be integrated with contact trace, with enterprise HR, with other platforms as required, while never touching the private, private data or, or, or integrating with, you know, with data that is, is self-sovereign. So that's the interaction. I want to leave some time for questions, so I'm not going to spend time on too much time on this. This is a component map. It will go out in the deck, and it just shows you know the the, the pieces you know that that make up the overall solution. The one thing I will talk about then is because this is the crypto curry. I'll talk about the data strategy. So there are three data stores that make this work. One is the encrypted evidence cache, which stays on your phone and never leaves it. The second is the operational and analytical data store. So this is where the anonymized data that epidemiologists use is held. It's where the content management for the guidance is, and it's where the protocols are defined and redefined and refined as time goes on. And then finally, you have where blockchain fits in. And blockchain provides, solves several problems for us. Uh, it provides an immutable ledger, which is going to be invaluable for researchers, you know, the, for the anonymized data of test results. It also very neatly solves, we found, the data residency problem. If you want to start making global insights uh, or insights that draw on data that exists in different countries around the world, where most countries have data residency requirements saying that if you're going to store data about our citizens, even if you do it anonymized, even if you don't have, you know, you, you don't violate people's civil liberties, you still cannot take that data outside of my country. The U.S. has these rules. Brazil has these rules. The U.K. has these rules. They're very strict in places like Indonesia and China. So blockchain provides a very, very convenient solution. We can set up individual blockchain nodes that provide the analytical insight on a global set of data, but ensure that we are, we are obeying these residency rules in spirit as well as in letter. And the third place where blockchain is, is of inestimable value uh, is in the provenance tracking. You know, so if, if there is a batch of bad tests that are, you know, that are producing accurate results, by virtue of having a, you know, an immutable ledger of the entire supply chain, we can quickly find out where every bad test in that batch is and pull it out of circulation, allowing us to resolve supply chain issues much more quickly. Could you do this without blockchain? Yes, absolutely. And people have. But because the blockchain industry has been spending the last three, four years solving it. This allows us to go very fast uh, in terms of delivering a solution. Last thing I'll spend time on is a roadmap. And this just basically shows where we are with this solution. We've got a, we've got a website that, is, that allows us to capture test results now. We made the decision early on that it, you know, if, if it was going to take us, you know, so we, you know, the, the actual passport is, is eight weeks away. But we started this, you know, uh, a little while ago, and we said, we can't wait even the short period of time that it takes us to build this. If we've got people who want to get 
the test results sooner than that. We need to provide a method. So we've got what we call the rapid deployment platform that's ready now for immediate data capture of results. And this is already being deployed currently you know, in Brazil. This is not self-sovereign. It's a central database and it gets sunset. So it's, it's designed so that as soon, as soon as somebody is loaded onto the immunity passport, their data is deleted. So it is not it is not designed to our standards, but we needed to provide a way to, to capture test results in the interim. And that's live now. The immunity passport itself rolls out in eight weeks. It's fully self-sovereign. We do have a way of serving users with no mobile device. And this is critical because in many places, smartphones are ubiquitous. If you look at a place like Brazil, uh, a much higher percentage of people have smartphones in Brazil than even the US or the UK. It's, it's, it's over 98% of people have, have smartphones in, in the first country where, where people are using this. That's great, but 2% don't. And the thing about COVID is the people who are the least likely to have a smartphone are also the people who are most at risk from serious complications due to COVID, which is the elderly. Uh, so it's not good enough to say, yeah, we cover 98% of people. We need a, we need a solution. And we do have uh, a capability of, uh, of running this in a kiosk mode for people with no mobile device. And pro finally, since the rapid deployment site doesn't meet our principles of self-sovereignty, we need a way to, to get people who have been tested in, in these first eight weeks off of that database and onto the fully self-sovereign solution. So if you're using the rapid de uh, deployment platform, we give you a redemption code. And as soon as the app is live, you can download the app, upload the redemption code, uh, and your data gets deleted. The beta, which will be four to six weeks after and is already in, in, uh, in design now, will implement the blockchain. It will support the loss or upgrade of your mobile phone, and it will support external APIs for people who want to use this data you know, to manage things using analytical tools they may already have. Full production needs to scale to you know, 100 uh, million users or more because we're, we're talking with some very large countries uh, that are looking to use this for their entire populations. It needs to provide the full supply chain provenance that I described. And at this point, we will be making the, the data available to researchers, to the scientific community, to universities, to medical groups, so that they can start using their AI and their machine learning capability to help in, you know, in the fight to actually vaccinate and, and, and possibly even treat COVID better. Thank you so much. So first of all, you mentioned companies taking care of their own citizens first. I don't know if this is one that you can answer, but you mentioned Sanofi announcing the US would be the first to receive a viable vaccine before the French, which is its home nation. Do you know anything about that at all? I do know about it, given the, I mean, so France and the US are historical allies. France was the US's first uh, big ally during the revolution. There's a long and very close relationship, but like many familial relationships, people tend to express their love through abuse. And I, I thought it was a very interesting decision for, for Sanofi to do that. I assume that it, whether it was, you know, that that decision was driven possibly by commercial or by, you know, or by relationship driven. So if, if Sanofi is relying on capabilities that are US based, this may be their way to get the solution live quickly. And I don't necessarily think that, you know, that I am in a position to speak pejoratively. There might be some very re good reasons to do that, but it was certainly a, a politically brave decision. Cool. Thank you. Are the antibody tests specific to COVID-19 or are they general to all coronaviruses? Um, 
It's a great question. Antibody tests look for antibodies by looking at a, per, uh, a sequence of proteins that exist on the antibody. You know, you're, an antibody is, a, is one of the largest, most complex molecules. You don't look for the entire molecule. You find a certain piece of it and say, you know, I, can I find this particular sequence of proteins? Different companies making antibody tests will choose different proteins to look for somewhere on that chain. And it's very much a crapshoot because by, you know, one thing about viruses is they mutate. You could get lucky and choose a virus that, or, or, or a protein sequence that stays the same through five, six, seven mutations. Or you, know, you could choose one that's very unstable and that mutates very quickly. And again, this is why medical community says, you know, we're not going to say immune for three years because, because of that. So the antibody tests specific to, uh, are specific to COVID-19. They may or may not be based on stable protein chains. We don't know yet. And different companies will have different chances of that. The platform, we obviously, we are very much thinking about other viruses and being able to use this overall ecosystem capability. You know, so for, for instance, right now, if you want to travel to you know, more than half the countries in, in the world, you have to carry evidence of a yellow fever vaccination. That's currently a yellow piece of paper that's, that's very easy to lose. We would love to be able to use this for, you know, for past and for future viruses as well. So the solution would be would be a broader immunity passport, where you could you know keep even you know, a, an immutable record of your childhood immunizations, and, and so forth. But these antibody tests we're talking about are specific to COVID nineteen. Cool. No, thank you. Many people, particularly the most vulnerable may be skeptical about this technology or may they or they may not have the resources to use it. How can you bridge this digital gap? It, it's a great question. It's something that we keep constantly in mind. So the way we're doing it is we're, we're enabling a kiosk mode where if you are an, an elderly person, say in a care home or, or visiting a clinic, that they will have the ability to, to perform the tests on your behalf and they will give you a, a, a unique identifier on a piece of paper or on, a, on an imprinted card. And that, that data is useless uh, without that key, which you carry. It's not the best solution, but we believe that it's, it, you know, uh, it, it is the solution that will allow somebody uh, to still retain the degree of self-sovereignty. You know, so the 98% the, the, the of, of people or, or so who have a mobile device one of the reasons we chose to implement this the way they do, we did is because it guards against systemic risk. And I'm particularly thinking about the systemic risk of getting hacked. There is no central database, okay? So there's no place where we can get hacked and somebody can steal the data for millions of people, okay? An individual phone can get hacked, but if you hack an individual phone, you're going to steal one person's records. You're not going to have a data breach that affects millions. Okay, storing somebody's information on a kiosk, because, a kiosk device because they don't have um, their own mobile phone. Now the number of, of records that can be hacked. So if you've got a, a care home with 50 people in it, somebody could potentially hack those 50 records. So it's not perfect, uh, but we think it is, the, you know, it is the best compromise that makes sure that the full capabilities of this, of this ecosystem are available even to people without mobile devices. What about identical twins? How do you test their identity? I like that question. That's a, it's, it's an awesome question. Uh, the attestation is done by a human being. So it is possible that two identical twins 
uh, could swap their passport and, and each end up with a passport with the other's identity. There, you know, we don't believe it's worth compromising the self-sovereignty of the data to put in place the kind of biometric validation that would be required to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. That being said, the, the, the incidence of, or, or, or the likelihood of abuse is, in a case like that, is vanishingly small. And there would have to be collusion on the part of both twins to do that swap. So it is, you know, the protection is no better than, you know, a, an identical twin impersonating their, their sibling to get on an airplane and flash their passport at the check-in counter. They could do that now, and they, they could do that to spoof this. So uh, we haven't made it any better, but we don't, also don't believe we've made it any worse. About the attestation, is this restricted movement? Is it necessary to be physically, to, to physically go to a notary, or could you live stream to prove who you are? And Another then- fantastic question, and this one has kept me up more nights than one. Okay. Uh, I would love to be able to have us support uh, attestation over Zoom for instance. And perhaps uh, we will come across a solution that allows us to do so by the time we reach full production. The reason we haven't elected to do that now is this notion of systemic risk. Right now, there is no systemic risk. There's no database. There's no way somebody could breach millions of records. The moment I set up uh, you know, even an encrypted pipe in Zoom where somebody could potentially hack into my video stream I think we could be pretty clever about keeping that secure. And I think even if somebody could tap into the video stream, they would then have to figure out some kind of OCR to pull the data off the passport because all they would be doing is flashing their passport. But even then, it's, it's, it's compromising what at this point is a very, very pure self-sovereignty solution. And I'm not going to re- recommend that we take that extra step until we have something that we are 100% confident uh, doesn't introduce systemic risk into our solution. Would I like to get there? Yes. Do I have some ideas? Yes. Are there any I'm comfortable enough to endorse yet? No. Is there any type of uh, backup of the data on your phone, such as the daily backup of things to iCloud, for example? And if not, what happens if you lose your phone? Is it safe? Um, the, the answer is I'm not sure yet. I mean, so one very easy way that we can solve the how do you transfer your passport if you if you lose your phone or if you upgrade to a, you know, a newer phone is to use the native backup capability in both iOS and Android to, to move your passport across. Before we sign on the dotted line and say, this is how we're going to do it, we want to understand the full security implications of doing that. So right now, the, de- the, the default, until you know, at least for the live trial for this first stage, is, is to say, you know, since we only want the live trial to be the first eight weeks, and then we'll go to the beta and then production. For now, we'd say, you know what, it's better to say, if you lose your phone, go get retested for a short period of time. We will eventually, by the time we go into production, have to support a lost or upgrade phone, or it's not a sustainable solution. But before we, you know, before we back a horse and say, phone backup is the way we're going to do it, you know, we might decide to go down a guardianship or you, you, know, you, you, you empower uh, a trusted member of your family. I mean, there, there's five or six different ways of solving this within the self-sovereignty community, and we're not ready to back a horse just yet. That is certainly one of the most elegant ways. We just want to make sure it's it, it's secure enough. Cool. No, thank you. Robin Fairless is asking, how granular is a user location that is sent out? So the the 
what we're using there is, uh, uh, first of all, no location is sent out unless the user gives consent. So you can get tested and decline to have your location sent out. So that's the first answer. The system that we are using for geolocation is a, uh, a solution called What Three Words, which is a, a very cl clever bunch of people who have tiled the, the entire earth into three meter squares and given each of those three meter squares an address that, that is, consists of three common English words. The, my home out address, which I actually use on my business card, is belong, enjoyable, delay. That is my what three words address. This is already being used in the post, as the postal code for some six or seven countries in the world that don't have reliable postcodes. To give an example of where what three words has been particularly successful, it's in Mongolia, which still has a very, very large nomadic population that will move around seasonally to different places and have no fixed address. Now, the Mongolian steppe is beautiful, and you can see why even today a nomadic lifestyle still makes sense. So by virtue of the fact that you can now use what three words address as your postcode, this means that Mongolians can now have Amazon. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's game changing. Or in Cote d'Ivoire, where you have villages that are not accessible by streets, it makes a huge difference. So we're using that because, again, we don't want to try anything new, and this has a pattern of success. Speaking to the UK government, and it feels a lot more robust um, than the pro proposed solutions that are being built and procured. Um, I say take that as a compliment, I'm sure. I can't go into too much detail about this, Mark, but let me answer both your questions. Are you speaking to the UK government? Yes. This feels more ro robust. We agree. Cool. Thank you. Is the immunity passport most likely to be adopted by one or multiple organizations that if you're not expecting or acquiring wider adoption, such as nationwide by a governmental health authority? And if this is correct, what limitations does that present for the viability of some of the broader applications you implied, such as getting into a bar or boarding a plane? And will the immunity passport carry sufficient credibility or recognition if it is only adopted by a few organizations? And if he's incorrect and you are pushing this for nationwide adoption, what are the risks for a government in partnering with a new company such as uh, Block Bioscience? And he so these are awesome challenges uh, and things we're thinking about. If I, if I can answer by way of an analogy, one of the, one of the design thinking patterns that, you know, that I've used for adoption is mobile money. And I've, took a, I've taken a look at the two countries in the world where the number of mobile money transactions is now higher than the number of cash transactions. That's happened in two places, and I happen to have lived uh, in both of those places, and that's Kenya and China. Uh, and in both of those cases, the adoption was driven not by the consumers, but by the merchants. What made mobile money ubiquitous, both in Kenya and China, was that every small merchant accepted it. Because, you know, in, you know, in, in Kenya, it was because the small merchants wouldn't get robbed. Thieves, you know, thieves in Kenya roam around in armed gangs of, of 12 or more people. They are no joke. And carrying cash is exceedingly dangerous. This gave a shop owner uh, a way of not putting, being put into a life-threatening situation uh, on a regular basis. So it was a, a very easy step for, to, for a shop owner in Kenya to say, look, just text me your money with M-Pesa, and that way I don't have to have any cash. In China, it was more, you know, it, it more commerce-driven. 
because the banks are still state-owned, there is no commercial banking as we understand it in China. So small businesses didn't have the kind of cash management services that merchants in the, in the UK or the US take for granted. And the, so the, and the growth of Alipay was, was driven because of that. So in, but in both cases, it was the merchant networks that really caused the adoption to go viral. We believe it's going to be the same here. So absolutely, we're looking at a solution that provides small businesses the capability uh, to use you know, these assertion checks to let people into hotels and bars. And that's very much in our mind. We need, we need larger enterprises, quite frankly, to, to fund our development. We need to sell to some big clients and indeed to some national governments to have the money to build out the rest of our solution. Uh, we would much rather do that than go, go the venture capital right. So far, that, that appears to be working well for us. And, and, and we're very optimistic that, you know, that our financing approach was the right one. So yes, we, we, and we will do that by providing the larger enterprises the kind of analytic capability they need to get a, a workforce of 100,000 employees or more back to work. But what they're funding is, is something that you know, an owner of a bar in Brazil and which is which we're using as a use case because you know it's, it's an actual thing that we're doing in Brazil right now. You know, to who has five employees in that bar can use this to let people into the bar. So the commercial model is very much along those lines. The idea is basically the passport costs a dollar for a year. The agent pass, you know, the agent app costs a dollar. We want to make this something that is affordable for everyone. The analytical capabilities that large enterprises need, well, those are going to cost more. But the, the, the fundamental idea is a dollar, a pound, a euro, whatever your, you know, your unit of currency is, it's going to be at an affordable level for you know, even the poorest of people, because that's the only way we can do our job. We think that the, you know, the level of gouging we're seeing sickens us and we want no part of it. So the commercial model is, is driven to make this uh, affordable or even, in fact, in some places free. And it's very much along the lines of, we believe that our success in getting this out there and getting it used is by getting small merchants to adopt it. Cool, thank you. If in the age of the gig economy, can a user be part of multiple organizations? Yes, yes, they can. The, the passport is singular. They, you know, so you have a passport. So if you are an employee of Deutsche Telekom and you take a flight on Emirates, for instance, um, not picking those companies at random, you can use the data. Larger enterprises like these are very jealous of their brand and want an integrated user experience. So Emirates, for instance, famously does not let you know, anybody, you know, so all of the experience that you need to do with Emirates is ha- handled via one single Emirates app. So what we will do to provide these very large and brand sensitive organizations the capabilities they want is the ability to integrate with our app on the phone. In other words, again, they will not be able to query any of the personal identifiable information, even on the phone, but they will be able to interact with the app to answer the questions that they are legally allowed to answer to do the job. So for instance, if, you have, if, you, if you're traveling and you want to say, should I let this person on the plane? You can give the user of the, you know, the, the Emirates app that advice in the Emirates app. So you are clear to travel, you are not clear to travel. But the, the lookup will be done on a single immunity passport which the, the, the other branded apps would query. Cool, thank you. Uh, John Stoddart is um, saying that he's been working on something similar, 
but using financial services, KYC, video onboarding tech, and then using hash, uh, encrypted QR. So encrypted QR code is used alongside with a facial image and voice to ensure that they've got the correct individual. And that linking with laboratory admin systems is important too. How do you see that happening and who will actually purchase the system? Uh, it's another great question. And obviously it's something that we've thought of. The self-sovereignty you know, industry and the state of the art is, is really in its nascency. There are several competing standards and a lot of them are, are actually brilliant in, in my mind and really, really thoughtful. Uh, I couldn't place a, uh, place a bet on which one will achieve predominance. Uh, so we've elected to design a solution uh, that can, can eventually support or be certifiable in, in any of these schemes. Once we place a bet on biometrics or on, again, how we support lost phone, we constrain ourselves. We will have to place those bets. I am guessing that eventually we will need to, to, to support some form of biometric validation. I don't feel yet qualified to have an opinion on, on, you know, on which one to choose or on how to do it. Again, not to say I don't have ideas. I have some pretty, pretty clear ideas. But, but I want to make sure that it's right before we, 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 we place that bet. Cool. No, thank you. And what is your view on the viability of a global immunity passport? Uh, our view is that it's eminently achievable and we'd like to be the ones to do it. Cool. Short and sweet. What level of investor or institutional support would move this to get where you needed to go? Our strong preference is to get uh, the funding through doing business rather than by uh, equity fundraising. We believe that is a sustainable model. And we believe that the, the, uh, we think it, I mean, we think it's a great business because we can offer this capability, you know, at a price that is not gouging uh, at a dollar a year per person. And the cost of building it is noise in comparison. What makes this work is adoption. If we can get this adopted rapidly, it is a hugely viable business model and not one we need to seek uh, equity investment for. So that's, that's our focus. Cool. Thank you. Um, somebody is asking, what is the underlying tech that will be leveraged with the immunity passport? Well, so I, I, I've given some of that, that information. I, I'm not going to divulge all of it. I'm not going to give away our secret sauce. Blockchain plays a key role. We are not a zero-knowledge proof solution using the technical and academic definition of what a zero-knowledge proof is. We're not doing the, you know, the stochastic modeling around zero-knowledge proof, uh, but we're clearly using zero-knowledge proof principles to say you can answer a question without having to know the reasons and get a tested answer that you can trust. Clearly, we're, we're going to be employing uh, machine learning in our, in, our, in our analytic capability. We are employing you know, end-to-end encryption, even for the anonymized data. We are employing compliance solutions to make sure that we're GDPR compliant, to make sure that we're HIPAA compliant and CMS compliant. So we're employing a, a mix of technologies to, you know, to ensure. But as I said, we're not actually doing anything new. And that's a conscious decision because we need to go fast. You can go new or you can go fast. Uh, in my experience, you're not that successful if you try to do both at the same time. How one can protect data sovereignty with quantum computing coming online and you've mentioned phones being hacked. So again, you know, prior to starting this, you know, my firm FinServe Experts was actually developing capability in, in quantum resilience. So this is something that I could do an entire 
one hour curry on. These are some really, really Teflon coated ideas. Even with a degree in applied mass, it's hard for me to understand. But the short answer is we can't. So again, what we've, what we've opted to do here is to solve the quantum resilience problem by saying, you know, there is no target to be hacked. Could you use quantum methods to hack a phone? Yeah, easily. You will get one person's data or at worst, you know, 50 people's data for a device in kiosk mode. What you, what we're trying to avoid, and this is why we're not doing attestation over Zoom, for instance, what we're trying to avoid is that whether it's quantum or some other method, if somebody breaches us, there's nothing for them to get. If this immunity passport can be used one day for access to a pub or movie theater or a cinema for us English folks or a concert, or how do you assess immunity or the right to go to the pub or theater or a concert for the 80 to 95% of people who have not had the virus and do not have antibodies? So again, it's a, it's a great question and it's, it's an early use case. It's not, you know, we'll do that someday. It's, you know, we'll do that very soon. Uh, likely first in Brazil and likely this, you know, this summer. So that's the, you know, that that's early on the roadmap, not later. And you do it by making it, you know, almost as easy for to be an agent uh, using our parlance as it, as, as it is to be a member. So if you have, if you run a pub or a restaurant or a hotel, you can use this to, to check people when they enter and the decision or the basis of that decision will change. As I said, the protocols are changing all the time. But one thing that's clear, there is a protocol, you know, in pretty much every country right now on how to let somebody in uh, or give somebody access when they test entirely negative. Have never had the, you know, never had any symptoms, never had the antibodies, you know, could be at risk of infection. But, you know, but so... Given that the you know, even in the worst places in the world, we're talking about five percent of, of the country, you need a protocol that supports the other ninety-five percent. So, what we have to do right now is to make sure our our platform is flexible enough to allow people to construct protocols and to change those protocols on a regular basis. So far, all the protocols we've seen address what, you know what to do about the ninety-five percent and the conditions under which you let them into a bar. So. As long as we keep up to date with those protocols, the, you know, the, the pub owner and the restaurant owner will be able to use our solution to let somebody in. Cool. No, thank you. Um, if you've considered custodianship and guardianship, such as several people in a family sharing one phone, like a child, for example. Uh, yes, we have. Uh, short answer. And as I said, we're looking at several of the ways that we can make compromise on the, you know, a self-sovereignty compromise to support a lost or upgrade phone. Guardianship is one of the things that we've looked at as a solution to that. And again, for use of shared devices, the multi-factor authentication for, for, you know, going into a pub or a par is the phone plus a selfie. So the selfie won't work if, you know, if it's on somebody else's phone, because we have, you know, we'll be able to say the selfie is, 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 you know, was taken by this phone. And if you just, you know, you, you send that selfie to someone else, it won't work on their phone. So a family won't be able to use a single phone with four different selfies on it. And you know, that, that, you know, the, the attestation won't, doesn't work that way. You know, could we in the future support a guardianship model that, with shared devices? Yes, we could do that. Could we use uh, a guardianship model as a way of, for, you know, as, as one of several possible methods for a, a lost or upgraded phone? Yes, we could. We haven't placed a firm bet on that. We want to understand uh, the guardianship 
scenarios better and the risks they propose before we put that stake in the ground. Fred Perkle-Hobbs is asking, what is the competitive landscape for this technology? If, if multiple solutions emerge, do you expect interoperability? Everybody and their brother is in the number of solutions that are, that are out there are proliferating. Respondents to some of the RSPs in the UK have numbered in the thousands. So the competition is here. We think we have several notable differentiators. One is that we are not just a software company. We have uh, an established supply chain that almost nobody can touch. So we, we, we can not only provide the platform, we can provide the tests. That's key. We believe that, you know, that most of our competitors have made compromises in self-sovereignty that we're not willing to make. We think that's key to drive adoption. The contact trace solution in Singapore, notably, has failed an adoption, even in a country where following the rules and following the government is a cultural norm, which, you know, again, I've lived in Singapore and it is a cultural norm. But even there, people are not going for the solution because it isn't self-sovereign. There are other differentiators, which, you know, I, 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 I'm not so keen on discussing in a public forum, but the, the competitive landscape is already fierce. It's going to get worse. Everybody sees this as an opportunity to make money. But I think the access we have, the fact that we have a supply chain, the, the, the fairly pure nature of our self-sovereignty, and to be honest, our pricing model you know, of a dollar per person puts us in a very, very good place. Would the production stage of the immunity passport play nice with other passport schemes that would undoubtedly, undoubtedly emerge? I'm guessing that's the same, similar sort of... Well, so up to a point, we've already recognized the need to support in a limited way contact trace. We don't want to be enablers of a, of a surveillance state and we will not touch contact trace data ourselves. But we, we do believe that, that you know, as I said, the only way to fight this with is, is an ecosystem. And there is indisputable empirical evidence that, that contact trace is, is a viable part of that ecosystem. So we will provide, as, as I said, the, the principle that I'm, I'm using, I'm calling insulated pipes. We will provide the integration capability without ever touching that data, and we will have independent authorities audit us to make sure that you know, it's not just us saying so. The other place where we will directly cooperate is the one I already described. When we're working with governments or enterprises who want to include the capability of the passport within their integrated user experience, we will do that uh, in a model so long as those companies and the, the apps being uh, put forward by those companies and those governments query the data on the phone using questions they're legally entitled to ask that don't compromise self-sovereignty. Cool. No, thank you. Uh, Richard is just asking very quickly where you got your lapel pin from. I'm guessing it's a UNSDG's one. from. That, that's right. This is the, the color wedges on here represent the, the, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which for those of you who know me from my FinServe experts days, we were very, very key players in uh, financial inclusion and, and recycling and, and sustainable circular economies. So we are we're very passionate about the UN SDGs and you know, they make a difference. And you know, the financial inclusion work that I've done to date is, is the thing that I'm proudest of in my career. So absolutely thrilled to wear this. Where I got it, you actually go to, the, there's, there's an online store in the UN where you can buy the pin. 
there have been some uh, data published recently that several countries have conducted antibody testing on a sizable population sample, but that the percentage of positive results has been fairly small, albeit tests haven't been 100% accurate. Given that tests are more or less accurate and reliable, does this imply that either immunity was not developed or that individuals have not had the virus? And can passporting lead to some discrimination or privileging based on not having or having immunity? The short answer is yes, it can, and it worries us a lot. There's a, there's another social social outcome that worries us even more, which is people having COVID parties uh, and voluntary you know you know intentionally contracting the disease so they can get the antibody and go back to work. We've actually retained you know uh, a behavioral economist on our staff to to help us. Uh, map those very very <laughs> turbulent waters. So I, I, I think I think this is a this is a really valid concern, and it's something that we have to be very careful. I think the the answer is is twofold, but it it revolves primarily around the guidance you give to people. Okay, if the only way to get back to work is to have the pass you know, the, the the confirmed immunity and a passport that says so, you're going to get some very very risky and behaviors that are going to put society more at risk. So the, the answer is in defining protocols that uh, you know, provide a path to getting back to work and, and, and making a living for people who don't have the virus. So as a technologist, I just have to provide a platform that provides the flexibility to support those protocols. As an influencer of policymakers, we have to not just provide a piece of technical kit, but we have to advise people to say, no, you don't want to write the protocol that way. We've got a platform that supports it if you do, but what you have to do is you have to write a, a, a protocol that doesn't encourage behavior that puts people more at risk. How will the app change with the definition of immunity? Uh, so ultimately, you know, in the longer term, there's going to be a vaccine here. And the app is already being designed to support a vaccination as part of your immunity record and indeed to go beyond vaccination for COVID, but vaccination for yellow fever or the MMR vaccination that, you know, that most people in most part, part, part of the kids, you know, you know, in the world get today. Polio. I mean, what a tragedy. We had a disease that was almost erad eradicated, but is now reemerging because some countries are choosing not to, to pay for vaccinations. And because of outbreaks of, of, of an even worse disease, COVID called idiocy in, play, in, in certain parts of the U.S. where they actually are, are choosing not to vaccinate for, for polio. So yes, we are absolutely thinking about the, you know, the, the long-term impacts and the role that we can play in taking the fight to the next stage. For some musing on the long-term social impact of COVID that is, is probably higher quality than my own, I would strongly uh, advise people to read a LinkedIn post that Bill Gates wrote about three weeks, two or three weeks ago now, that where he predicts what the long-term impact is going to be uh, on society due to COVID. Um, predicting the future is, 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 is chancy at best. I can say from personal experience that I suck at it. Bill Gates has a better record than most, both as uh, a commercial leader of a major organization and then as a leader of the world's largest uh, philanthropic foundation. He's gotten things right uh, way off, more often than most people do, including the world's inability to cope with a major pandemic. So very, very highly recommended reading to further understand uh, the impact of COVID on society. Currently, drivers have half a dozen various pay and display parking apps on their phones. 
as different car parks use different parking apps and is it a risk that something similar might happen with an easy passport yes every establishment wants a different one yeah so the again the risk of fragmentation is is a very real risk if you want to look at you know a, a horrible warning or, or place where it's gone very wrong, look at mobile money in Indonesia, where there are over 60 different payment apps, none of which have critical mass, where merchants have to have whole banks of point of sale devices uh, to, you know, to make a living. So again, this is something that, that is very, very, you know, very much on our radar. What our view is, again, is we want to drive adoption by making this extremely inexpensive to use, uh, by providing a set of capabilities that even the owner of a small bar or restaurant uh, has no problem deploying, and by getting it out there as you know these timelines that you see on the roadmap, you know they aren't the normal amount of time you would want to do it. You know you you would want to do this in, and you know getting it out there quickly, I think is the, is the best way uh, we can avoid that kind of fragmentation. Cool, no, thank you. Olga is asking if there's any consideration for kids parking since they're only likely to have a phone when reaching a certain age, or are they out of scope being in a low-risk population? Uh, obviously, we are considering. So in many cases, the age at which kids get phones is, is, is getting younger and younger. And that's, it's far younger in Brazil than it is in the UK, for instance. But nevertheless, and, and there was another question about guardianship. We are looking at that. I'm not going to tell you we have an answer for it yet, but it is something that you know, by the time we get you know into full production, we absolutely need to support. All right, cool. Okay, thank you. If you've got a view or solution for interoperability in the event that another successful solution emerges, you've already mentioned that a bit, but I guess the question is, would you be willing to partner? So do I have a view or solution? Yes, I do. I'm not interested in sharing it at the moment. Fair. And uh, somebody is saying that, what about the agent that testifies or validates uh, a member that's onboarding info or validating the ID and who's accountable for them? So I know, and this is an important thing. And again, we've tried to design a model for interaction that's elegant. So one of the things that, you know, so if you are drawing blood, for instance, or evaluating a test, you have to be qualified to do that. So Currently, in many countries, the people who are allowed to draw blood, you have to be a doctor, a registered nurse, or a phlebotomist, okay? If you are running one of these very sophisticated CLIA or ELISA assay machines, okay, you have to be a qualified lab tech, and you have to be trained on that specific machine in that specific assay on that machine. So we are using the same attestation capability to do that. So a doctor who wanted to sign up as uh, an agent who had a qualification to draw blood would get their medical qualification attested in the same way that a member got their passport attested, following a very similar process, using the same capability, using the same self-sovereignty. So the platform will support the attestation of agents with specific qualifications, as, re as well as just general agents. Uh, so we're using, you know, we're eating our own dog food and using our same attestation engine to onboard the agents as well as the members. Oh, no. Thanks to you, Erica, for, first of all, organizing it so efficiently and making it so seamless. But thank you even more just for giving me uh, the opportunity to share.